One afternoon in a conversation, Ranibhan told me about Rahana Tiabji, a Muslim saint and associate of Gandhi who lived in Delhi. She told me that when the saint became of marriageable age, her parents already had decided what rich and powerful man she would marry. So Rahana fervently prayed to God that something would happen to her, even death if necessary, so that she would never have to marry. Immediately, the pigment began leaving her skin, making her all blotchy and diseased-looking. Fearing leprosy, it was really, though, only vertiglio, the family she was to marry into declared that their son would not marry her, and all other families felt the same way. Once she was freed from the threat of marriage, her entire skin turned white, and she appeared quite normal except for two brown splotches underneath her eyes that perhaps remained as a guarantee that no one would want to marry her in the future. I had to meet that saint. At least she and I would have a version of marriage in common. Ronnie called the house where Rahana was living and made an appointment to see her in a few days. Rani further told me that Rahana had refused all inheritance from her family and lived in a small room in the back of one of Gandhi's secretaries, Sri Kaka Saheb Kalelkar. And the house was down the street from Rajgat, where Gandhi's ashes were enshrined. Rahana's room was at the back of the house, away from street noise. She was very welcoming to me, speaking perfect English, and looking perfectly English, actually, since the pigment had left her skin. She could have just come off the streets of London. She also had a complete understanding of Western ways. As a result, she was often visited by Western people who had come to India, and very frequently by members of the European embassies in Delhi. She not only spoke English, she could communicate totally because she knew how Westerners thought. Yet she herself was 100% Indian in all personal traits, and once even said to me, I would rather be a cockroach in India than a saint in the West, referring to the advantageous spiritual atmosphere of India. During one visit, she said to me, You are a fraud. Naturally, I was shocked and chagrined. Why would she think that? Then she smiled and continued, Here you are sitting in front of me, claiming to be an American, when you're really an old sadhu who has wandered this land in many lives. You are a Bharati. Bharati means Indian. That gratified me. I felt just the same. Many times in my visits to India, people said to me, You're not a foreigner. You're one of us. Actually, in the very first week I was in India, I observed that my Indian friends reacted utterly differently to me than they did to others from the West. We would sit and talk and laugh like family, but when a Westerner approached, they would become very quiet with impassive faces until they left. I wonder, is this the reason for the idea of inscrutable Orientals? But anyway, then, when they, once they left, then it was back to friendship and fun. In India, there is a wonderful custom. 
In the evening, the whole family gathers in the bedroom, sitting on the beds or sleeping mats, and talking to one another about their day and the latest news, etc. This includes the children, no matter how small. I've enjoyed those wonderful times with them as part of the family, even in America when I was visiting with Indian families. One time Rahanaji said to me, you know, foreigners are often born in India for some reason, and they don't like it at all. They're furious and disgusted. The Delhi is not like Paris or New York. They are a real nuisance to us, and the moment they get the chance, they're off to the West, and we are so glad to get rid of them. Then there are people like you, old Bharatis, who somehow ended up in the West. You can't stand it there. Those around you don't understand you. And when you get here, you find yourself right at home, which you are. Many years later, Swami Ishtananda of the San Diego Vedanta Society told me, I have given a lot of thought to your situation and have decided that just as in baseball, if something is not right in the batting, the ball goes sideways in a completely wrong direction. In the same way, when you were to be born, you were tossed toward India but something went awry, and you ended up here. It might be so, and I have begged many saints in India to bless me, that there will be no more mistakes and no more births outside India, and I'm happy to say they all agreed to do so. Of course, I prefer even more the prophecy made by a priest of the Gauri Shankar Temple in Delhi. I was with my good friend Shamlal Sharma, before the Rama shrine. We bowed down, and as we started away, the priest reached out and caught Sharmaji by the shoulder, something completely against the rules, as a priest never reaches out from the shrine and never touches anyone while on duty. Pointing to me, he told Sharmaji, this is his last birth. When he leaves this world, he will go to God. But even at that moment, I was living in my favorite heaven, India. There were many reasons why India was my heavenly home. During my first visit with Rahana, she told me the following, which illustrates the unique character of India and her people. Outside Delhi, but exactly where all travelers by either plane, train, or auto would pass by, was a huge, horrific slum that was a hotbed of violence, crime, and even racketeering. The people living there were extremely poor, and most of them made their living dishonestly. Murder was common. Many criminals were hiding there from the law. And to top it all off, it was called the Paradise of Krishna. Many times the army and the police came out and demanded the place be vacated, but they were only mocked. Even Prime Minister Nehru went there, and speaking by loudspeaker, commanded them to decamp. Only defiance came in response. Finally, in a very desirable area, the government built a small town that could accommodate everyone and offered it to them for the mere moving, but they refused. As a last result, the government came to Rahana and asked her to persuade them to move. Rahana almost never left the property where she was staying, so she asked that the leaders of the 
paradise be brought to her. They readily came, filling her room because of her reputation for holiness and devotion. One of Rahana's positive traits was her truthfulness and straightforwardness, as they then found out. You have cursed the earth on which you live, was her opening statement. You have brought dishonor to this city, crime, disease, and death to many. And you have the outrageous arrogance to defile all authority when you're told to disband and you refuse the offer of a place fit for you and your children to create new decent lives for yourselves. If you do not do something about it, the karmic law itself will bring disaster on you. Now leave that place of shame. To the astonishment of the government representatives, they all said, we will. But she had more to say. Good, but you have to cleanse the earth you have defiled. So first, you must clear all your buildings and other debris from the land. No pundit or priest will function for you, so you must choose several of your own people to function as purohits, that's priests. And you must perform havan, that's a fire sacrifice, with everyone, including the children that can understand what they're doing. Making the offerings with the mantra, Om Namo Bhagavate Vasudevaya, which is the mantra of Krishna, 108 times each. As soon as that is done, get up and leave immediately and reform your lives. The leaders agreed, thanked her, and followed her instructions exactly. In a few days, they were gone without a trace of the slum that had disgraced the area for so many years. This can happen only in India. Only in India. Yet there is much in India that is not perfect, and Rahana spoke of it readily. Ours is an Asuric, a demonic government, she often said. Once I told her of having witnessed in a supposedly spiritual institution run by Westerners in India, the terrible mistreatment of children and even adults. They treat the Indians like slaves, I told her in indignation. I don't feel sorry for those Indians at all, she shocked me by saying. If they did not have the minds of slaves, they could not be treated like slaves. She spoke the truth, and I learned the lesson. The same organization treated their members in the West in the same exploiting and bullying manner, and they too accepted it without protest or the good sense to leave such an organization. Even more, I had to admit that most of the religion in the West was deceiving, deluding, and disempowering its members. I realized from Rahana's words that they were cooperating with their religion and its administrators, and therefore just as culpable as they were. It is not easy to recognize and acknowledge that there are no innocent victims in this world, but it is necessary for those seeking truth. Although Rahana was from a prominent Muslim family, and every Friday had a man come to her room and recite a chapter from the Quran, which the, she then kissed in reverence, she was a fervent devotee of Krishna, whose picture she kept on an altar where she could always see it. She had also written a remarkable book in 1924, The Heart of a Gopi, about the early life of Krishna 
based on her recall of a past life. Sri Aurobindo Ghosh read the book and told the members of his ashram, the author of this book was there in Brindaban with Krishna. One afternoon at the Delhi ashram, when people were sleeping after the noon meal, Anandamai Ma came walking through the main hall where some of the women who traveled with her were sleeping. One of them had a copy of The Heart of a Gopi by her head. Ma stopped and asked, What is that book? When she was told the title, Ma said, I can see tiny figures dancing the Maharasha Leela on the cover. Uh, the Maharasha Leela was a time when each gopi found herself dancing with Krishna at the same time, a Krishna for each one. In her younger days, Rahana had been a renowned classical singer, giving concerts of devotional songs, especially to Krishna, for up to 20,000 people without needing a microphone. A woman who had attended many assured me that every person there could hear and understand every word and note. One time some religious leaders from Mecca came to visit Rahana and noticed her altar with Krishna's picture. Naturally, they asked about it. Oh, Lord, help me, I prayed, Rahana told me, laughing at the memory. Somehow I convinced them that there was no conflict between Islam and the teachings of Krishna. I don't think I could do it again. She also considered Jesus a saint of India, believing that he lived in India both before and after his mission in Israel. Rahana accepted readily the spiritual interest of Western people in the religion of India and gladly explained things to them and gave them spiritual advice. Yet she lamented to me that the absolute necessity for purification on all levels seemed to elude nearly all of the seekers from the West. She told me of various Westerners, including many living in India, who had suffered mentally and physically from engaging in practices that in themselves were invaluable, but which, when applied by unpurified aspirants, could rebound to their detriment. Fortunately for some of them, she had been able to show them the need for discipline and purity on all levels of their life. She was also concerned about how best to make it clear that no one could follow the path of the great master yogis without following their way of life scrupulously, including their single-hearted dedication to the quest for enlightenment above all. The manner in which Rahana helped seekers advance on the holy way spontaneously was especially inspired. The first step in her instruction was the need to constantly engage in the repetition continually of a holy name of God. But what name? She knew that they would be nervous about whether they could pick the right mantra for themselves and that many Indians were afraid that to choose one deity's name over another might offend the other deities. Because even in the East, fear often intrudes itself into religion. But at least there, it's an aberration and not a foundation like in the West. So Rahana's solution was to ask each one to buy a holy picture for her. 
When they asked whose picture it should be, she told them, Please take your time, even days, until you find what you consider the most beautiful picture available. Of course, they would find most beautiful the subject which they liked the best. When they would bring the picture to her, she would say, Oh, see how little space there is on my walls? Why don't you take this home with you and keep it for me? And why not try doing japa and meditation with the name of this deity for some days and then come and tell me how it seems? Always they would like doing japa of that deity's sacred name. Well, then what about purification? There is no way to evade the bedrock fact that complete abstinence from meat and alcohol is essential for success in authentic spiritual life and yoga practice. But Rahana would say nothing about it to those that she knew ate meat and drank alcohol. She would only urge them to increase their meditation and japa to fill their days. After a while, they would come to her and say, You know, Rahana Ben, lately I don't feel so well when I eat meat. I wonder what is wrong. Perhaps you have an allergy to meat, she would suggest, knowing that would be an acceptable reason to their families and business associates for becoming a vegetarian. After all, didn't those sophisticated Westerners they so admired have allergies that prevented their eating various things? Of course. So they became vegetarians with no trouble. Then after some time, they would themselves tell her, you know, I think I'm getting allergic to alcohol. Then you had better quit drinking it, she would comment. Yes, I will. And that was how they rid themselves of hindrances in their spiritual life without a bit of trouble. They were blessed students of a blessedly wise teacher. Now wisdom comes in many forms, and I was amazed to see that by her bed, Rahana kept a large bookcase filled with the complete works of Agatha Christie. When I remarked on it, she answered, Oh yes, I learned a great deal from her. I must confess, I was not very sure about that, but on returning to America, I began reading Christie and found that beneath the surface of her plots, there was a foundation of profound insight into human nature and behavior. Rahana also detected wisdom and virtue whenever it entered the orbit of her life. One day she told me about the woman who cleaned for her. Supposedly an untouchable, an outcast, who lived in a kind of tent city on the banks of the Jumna River, which is sacred to Krishna. Rahana yet saw her as a truly worthy person who was very touchable indeed. Once when there was a flooding of the Jumna for over a week, the woman did not come to Rahana's, and Rahana began to be afraid that she had drowned. Then one morning, the woman came into her room, smiling and perfectly well. When Rahana asked where she had been, the woman began telling her with great relish about her adventures. Oh, madam, right away the water came into our tents, right up to the level of our cots. For nearly the whole week, we just sat there without food, but plenty of water. <laughs> 
So we had great fun telling stories and singing songs. How we laughed. When the water went down, we were sorry to see it go. It was such a good time. Now just think, Rahana said to me, of the way all of us, including those who consider themselves spiritual and non-material, would react to being without food and water and in danger of higher flooding and death for days. And those supposed outcasts, whom no pure person is supposed to touch, were enjoying themselves and not complaining or asking God to change things. And you notice that no good charitable people or relief agencies bothered to rescue or help them. They just left them there, perhaps to die. But do they resent it? No. They think of it as a lark and they laugh. Who are the wise in this world and who the foolish? I wonder. In India, people frequently ask me in a very diplomatic way about my family, usually what they thought about my choosing the path of the yogi sadhu. So the subject of family came up in conversation, and Rahana told me about the carings-on of her family when she refused to marry, announced herself as a devotee of Krishna, and left home to join Gandhi in his struggle for independence. But she concluded saying, you know, when they find you don't want anything from them, and you will ask for nothing in the future, they leave you alone and eventually forget about you, even if they remember you occasionally and grumble or lament, and you are at peace, living in fulfillment. She was not being cynical, she was just cognizant of human nature. I love my family, she concluded, but I can live happily without them. As I have mentioned, she lived on the goodness of one of Gandhiji's secretaries in whose ashram, right next to Gandhi's in Wardha, she had lived for many years. My last visit to Rahana, I found it very hard to get to the house because the streets were crowded with buses, bringing thousands of people from all over India. I had heard rumor of a fire sacrifice being conducted somewhere. When at last I was in her room, she asked me if I knew what was going on. Some people decided to hold a great haven at Rajgat by Gandhiji's memorial for the purpose of bringing about world peace. It took a long while to get permission, but finally they did and created a huge haven kund. This is kind of like a fire pit with wood arranged in a tremendous high pile. It was announced that they would not kindle the fire in the usual way, but would recite mantras to invoke fire from heaven to kindle it. For over a week, pundits went in shifts, reciting the mantras nonstop all day and all night. A few observers came, but not many. Of course, the westernized newspapers sent reporters so they could print stories about how the superstition did not work, but it did. Many saw a kind of lightning bolt come from the sun and ignite the wood. The yagya began in earnest all day and all night, and people began streaming in from all over India. Although it was scheduled to end some weeks before, they had decided to keep on until everyone who wanted had come and taken part, 
And so it was going on right as I visited Rahana. I never had a doubt about the event being supernatural. Though it is barely known, some spiritual groups during World War II decided to hold a great hoven to end the war. The oblations were going to be made with the Gayatri Mantra, the great prayer for enlightenment found in the Rig Veda. In a matter of days, the war was over. Later, I would meet in western India a venerable pundit who could kindle the sacred fire by mantra recitation. I did not see it myself, but my friend the Raja of Chandod, a very hard-headed, no-nonsense man, has seen him do it more than once. About ten years later, I was in Delhi, and by chance, the taxi took me down the street to where Rahana had lived, though both she and Kakasaib Kalalkar had left the body. Eagerly, I looked for the house and compound. It came in sight, seemingly all closed up, but there toward the back, I saw the little window of her bathroom open as usual. Floods of memories came back to me, and my heart yearned to see my dear friend once more, to hear her sweet and melodious voice and see her joyful smile. A cousin who dearly loved my mother, who had died when I was five years old, often said to me, as long as you are alive, your mother will never die. And as long as I live, my Rahana will never die either. 